0: Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership.
1: Mike, we're nearly halfway through a presidential election year. Can you believe it?
2: (laughs) It's very difficult to believe, Tothie, because the nation's attention is, I think, in large part, focused elsewhere. Rightfully so, with, with mm-hmm. COVID nineteen, um, but it is it is difficult to remember that we're uh, mere months away from a presidential election.
1: Yeah, yeah, and if you add um, the impact of COVID nineteen and the challenges with the pandemic into the election year cycle, I think it's a pretty safe bet that healthcare is going to be a major focus for campaign messages. It's always part of any kind of election of this magnitude, but I. Th- feel like this year it's going to be even more amplified than usual. Uh,
2: I think that that's a safe money bet. Uh, Certainly with millions or or, or tens of millions of fellow Americans unemployed and with so much of health care benefits tied to employment, it's a big issue for people. And as we move into these uh, discussions, it's, I think, important for our audience to know that the American Association for Physician Leadership is publishing a new book, And that is Physician-Led Healthcare Reform, A New Approach to Medicare for All. And you interviewed the author of this book, Ken Terry, about his different approach to Medicare for All.
1: That I did. Ken is a veteran healthcare writer, and he has done a ton of research about healthcare delivery and reimbursement models over the last couple of decades. And this is actually his second book about healthcare Hmm. reform. And his new Medicare for All approach is pretty compelling. Um, Important to our listeners is that it puts physicians at the top of the organizational leadership and decision-making, which I think is really important.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's hard for me to envision any system where we don't want physicians uh, taking the lead when it comes to making healthcare decisions. I feel strongly about that, and I would imagine many of our listeners do as well.
1: Including me. Um, So I know that uh, our folks are going to appreciate Ken's perspective, but before we cut to the interview, I have a juicy word of the show for you today, Mike.
2: Ooh, I love juicy words. (laughs) Let's hear it, Tothy.
1: Okay. The word of the show is deliquess, related to organic matter to become Mm -hmm. liquid, typically during decomposition. Deliquess.
2: Oh, it has a certain odor to it, does it not? (laughs) Yes, it's a beautiful word word, for a yucky thing. (laughs) Decomposition into a liquid form. Very nice.
1: Yeah, and I have, there's actually some interesting trivia about this word, deliquesce. I just like saying it. Um, Mm -hmm. Remember the actress Carrie Fisher?
2: I do. Carrie Fisher, uh, Star Wars Carrie Fisher, That's what I think of.
1: Yes, and When Mm -hmm. Harry Met Sally, yes, she's very famous, of course. Um, Well, at the suggestion of singer-songwriter Paul Simon, Carrie Fisher named her personal corporation Deliquess.
2: Okay, do you think that that Mr. Simon was just yanking her chain, like she didn't really know what, it just sounds nice, because (laughs) any French word sounds nice, and that it wasn't really about decomposition, because who would want to name their own personal company that they're starting up over something that is uh, rotting to the form of putrefication and liquidation?
1: I don't know, but maybe it says something about her that we just aren't aware of. So who knows? But uh, I thought you'd like that little piece of trivia. Mike. That's a good way to I, maybe, remember the word. Maybe Paul Simon knows something you and I don't, Toby. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. But on that note, and with that tremendous piece of, uh, of trivia, let's move on to your interview with Tim Carey about the new Medicare for All.
1: Our guest today is Ken Terry, a veteran healthcare writer, author, and former senior editor of Medical Economics Magazine. Ken, we're delighted to have you in the virtual studio today to talk about the future of how we pay for healthcare, and especially in the light of all the challenges providers have been facing during the COVID-19 crisis. So welcome to Sound Practice.
3: Well, thanks for having me.
1: So let me tell the folks a little bit about you, Ken. You are the author of the upcoming book, physician-led healthcare reform, a new approach to Medicare for All, which is set to be published by the American Association for Physician Leadership this summer. And Ken was a senior editor at Medical Economics Magazine for nearly 15 years. And while he was there, he covered all aspects of medical practice business and focused on managed care and health information technology. So Ken, Healthcare reform, let's face it, it's a pretty complex topic to tackle. So what inspired you to write this new book?
3: Well, in my earlier book that was published in 2007, I proposed the key concepts of how to restructure U.S. healthcare to support a single-payer system. Since then, the the negative trends I described in that book, uh, industry consolidation, skyrocketing drug prices, the decline of primary care, have worsened. As the 2020 presidential campaign got underway, I realized that Medicare for All had become mainstream and that Congress would eventually adopt something like it. So the time seemed right for me to further develop my ideas and apply them within a contemporary context.
1: Great. Well, most of our listeners already understand the concept of Medicare for All. And as you said, it's become mainstream. And they understand it as a way to provide coverage for everyone in the US at some level. Um, I know data, this was from your, your book, data from a recent Kaiser Family Foundation poll showed that more than half of Americans endorse the concept. So let's talk about your vision of Medicare for All in this new book, Ken. Describe for us the key elements and maybe how they're the same or different from what many of us have heard from various political candidates.
3: Well, my vision for Medicare for All is based on a few key principles. First, the healthcare system has to be restructured during the transition to Medicare for All in order to control costs. This restructuring would liberate physicians from hospital employment, would give primary care doctors incentives to form groups of a certain size, and would allow these groups to share in the savings from reducing the waste that now consumes around a third of our healthcare dollar. Like Bernie Sanders' plan, the uh, form of Medicare for All that I endorse would guarantee everyone access to comprehensive healthcare with low cost sharing. I also support Bernie's expansion of Medicare benefits, although how rich those benefits should be is open to debate. Mm -hmm. Where I part ways from him is in how he would hold down system-wide costs. To make his numbers work, he'd rely on lower administrative spending and reduced provider reimbursement. I agree that the administrative savings of Medicare for All would probably cut overall costs by 10%, but I don't think you can pay physicians and hospitals at Medicare rates across the board.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Joe Biden isn't proposing Medicare for All, but his public option could easily lead us in that direction. Unfortunately, it doesn't go far enough. I'm more attracted to the Medicare for America model from the Center for American Progress, uh, which is embodied in a House bill. This public plan would include Medicare and Medicaid, enroll people at birth, and allow all employees and employers to buy in. It could gradually morph into Medicare for All. One reason why we can't go directly to a single payer system is that around 170 million people are used to getting their insurance through their employers. Also, a large part of the business community still opposes Medicare for All because they think it will lead to higher taxes. Mm-hmm. Another important reason to take a more gradual approach is that our healthcare system is structured around fee for service and pay for volume. Medicare for All would have little effect on the waste in care delivery. So after the one-time savings in administrative spending, cost growth would resume its upward trajectory. We need time to change the incentives of providers and create a care delivery system to support that.
1: I'm curious, you mentioned the um, PCP incentive, incentives for PCPs to form large groups. Can you talk a little bit about what those might be? Well, th- this would
3: happen uh, you know, after uh, the initial steps that the government would have to take to allow providers uh, you know, freedom of, of movement in, mm-hmm. in, you know, by uh, no longer employing them. Essentially, the primary care doctors would face a choice between either being paid at Medicare rates or forming uh, uh, what I call statutory groups of a certain size that are large enough to take financial risk. And uh, by doing so, The primary care doctors uh, could earn bonuses that would be uh, large enough to uh, recover what they had lost, and then some. Uh, They could actually make more money than they were making before.
1: Great. Great. That sounds promising. Tell me what are some of the advantages to your approaches in terms of health outcomes and and cost savings?
3: Well, under my approach, uh, primary care groups would be placed in control of the system, and hospitals would lose market power. During the transition to Medicare for All, the government would require hospitals to accept the same negotiated payments from all private payers and to divest their physician groups. Mm -hmm. Primary care doctors would be incentivized to form groups that would be large enough to accept financial risk. They'd be capitated for primary care and would also take two-sided risk for the total cost of care. That financial risk would incentivize them to deliver the most effective care at the lowest cost. Under this approach, the primary care groups would have to make the best use of population, health management, and care teams to control costs and improve outcomes. In addition, they'd select high-value specialists who would share in the savings achieved by the primary care groups. Like physician-led ACOs, These groups would have a financial motive to change how they practice so they could reduce waste, improve care, and create savings for themselves and for the system. In addition, the primary care groups would compete with one another in regional marketplaces, and consumers would choose uh, primary care doctors with the help of published cost and quality data for the primary care groups in their area. Basically, this is a version of the managed competition that was at the heart of the Clinton health plan. Mm -hmm. But instead of placing the competition between health plans, the competition would be between providers of care where it belongs. Moreover, consumers would have a reason to choose high-quality, low-cost groups because their health taxes would depend partly on which group they selected.
1: That's really interesting. I am curious. These are all all heading toward better outcomes and and cost savings. You mentioned the uh, hospitals divesting of physicians, and this idea that the PCPs would rise in the PCP groups would have more power, and the hospitals would sort of reduce some of their market share. What are your suggestions for achieving some of those things? Any thoughts about that? About how that might proceed?
3: Well, as I said during the uh, transitional period. You could have a, um, a national uh, all-payer law, similar to the, the, uh, the all-payer law that, that exists now in Maryland and that has greatly reduced hospital costs in that state. And essentially, the, uh, the hospitals would uh, have to accept the same negotiated payments from all private payers, uh, including health plans and employers. Medicare rates uh, for, you know, for Medicare would remain the same so that the government wouldn't have to spend more money on that mm-hmm. and then when you got to Medicare for all, you'd have that same uh, negotiated rate that would apply to all payments, both public and private. But as I say you'd have to go through a transition process uh, to, to get there and in terms of divesting their their groups, um, a number of states already have Corporate practice of medicine laws, uh, the, the most strict of which is in California. But even that law is not very strict because you can create foundations to basically uh, lease physician services to hospitals, so they really still work for the hospitals. This proposal that I'm making would be much stronger and would really require not only hospitals, but uh, also insurance companies and, and private equity firms to divest all of their physician groups. Physicians could not work for non-physician entities, and they couldn't be sold to non-physician entities. So they would really uh, their their independence would be guaranteed.
1: That's great. I'm. Um, it's interesting thinking physicians working with physicians because our audience, of course, is physician leaders. And I agree that the physicians being in charge uh, really is how uh, the best way to move forward. We are recording this in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And in the midst of coronavirus and COVID-19, we've really seen telemedicine be um, a standout success. I was wondering how you see telemedicine and virtual visits fitting into this Medicare for All as you envision it. Is there some way that they are going to be able to impact, uh, to to, to improve, to reduce costs, to make cost savings more um, easier to achieve? Tell us about telemedicine and your vision.
3: Telemedicine, including uh, phone-only, audio, video, and online communications, is vital to uh, physician-led healthcare reform because it allows patients with chronic diseases to be monitored cost-effectively between visits. Uh, This is a bedrock requirement of population health management. In addition, minor acute care issues can be addressed virtually without the need for in-person visits. According to one estimate, Up to 70% of the complaints that primary care doctors handle in office visits can be diagnosed and treated via telemedicine. Moreover, virtual consults with specialists can enable primary care doctors to take care of some complex patients without referring them out. Physicians can also use remote monitoring to better care for some patients at home. Remote monitoring still has some way to go to be reliable and usable, But it has proved valuable in the ongoing care of chronic diseases such as diabetes and congestive heart failure. The COVID 19 crisis has even spurred the development of hospital at home programs that use telemedicine and remote monitoring to care for seriously ill patients in the home setting. Mm -hmm. One factor that deserves more attention is the digital gap. In a recent survey, 65% of doctors said that they had patients without computers or internet services. That's something that has to be addressed.
1: Yeah. Ken, I think you are absolutely right. This is something that's truly going to have to be addressed um, with whatever plan is in place because telemedicine clearly is not, it's the horse that's left the barn, as they're saying, and it's going to be a big uh, part of how we deliver care in the future. And as you said, I think population management, it fits, fits right in there. Ken, As we uh, talk about implementation, I'm curious to know what you think about if healthcare leaders and policymakers said yes to some of the ideas in your book uh, tomorrow or next week, how do you think we as a nation would start beginning to implement this new Medicare for all? I mean, physician leaders listening to this podcast, what do they need to think about? Okay, let's
3: say that the federal government adopted a 10-year plan to get to Medicare for all using a robust public option as the vehicle. Part of the legislation would be a national all-payer law uh, to eliminate hospitals' market power, as I said, and the uh, national corporate practice of medicine law. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
3: Physician leaders would need to persuade their colleagues to back the new care delivery system that would have to be built to support Medicare for all. Physicians would undoubtedly resist having to change their practice arrangements and how they practiced. Many things in physician culture would have to change. The key change would be in the shift from a pay for volume to a pay for value mindset. Only primary care doctors would be capitated. Specialists would still be paid fee for service. But doctors would have to accept the fact that they are stewards of scarce healthcare resources and that they must reduce the waste in the healthcare system. If their incomes depended on that approach and if they saw better, patient outcomes as a result, I think they'd support the restructuring of care delivery. Physician leaders would also have to think about the reasons for forming the statutory groups discussed in my book. Under the government program I proposed, no doctor would be forced to join a group, but when Medicare for All arrived, physicians would be paid at Medicare rates. The only way that they could earn more, as I said, would be to join or form the requisite groups and take risk in return for shared savings.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Specialists would be in separate practices, and they can only earn more than Medicare rates if they collaborated with the primary care groups to reduce the cost of care.
1: So we are right now on this path toward value-based care and bundled payments. And there is some risk-taking, risk-sharing, and especially some of the in cardiology and orthopedics. Um, would the value-based care, n- not just in those specialties, but in primary care too, would that path that we're on change a bit under your Medicare, new Medicare for all, or would we just sort of keep moving in that direction uh, with some changes?
3: Well, I think that, um, you know, under uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, and and the care delivery provisions uh, that were in that bill, um, we we are definitely moving in the right direction, but very, very slowly. Uh, And and the problem with that is that unless uh, a large, percentage of a, uh, a physician's or a hospital's revenues comes from value based value-based reimbursement
1: mm-hmm.
3: they, they're not going to change how they practice their, their main motive is still going to be uh, pay for volume yeah fee for service and, and, and that and that's what we've seen uh, you know even some of the purported value-based arrangements are really little more than uh, you know pay for performance. I don't think that the um, bundling arrangements are, are, are the right way to go because they're episode-based. We really need a population-based approach. Mm-hmm. And the shared uh, savings program of the MSSP, that's the Medicare Shared Savings Program, again, ha- has uh, established a lot of the basics of, of how to move in this direction, but there, it's still not enough incentive for the vast majority of uh of physician practices to go in that way. And as a result, the MSSP has saved only a, a tiny portion of the growth in, in Medicare spending each year.
1: Got it. So as you look at moving toward the, this, the policies and the vision you're talking about, what do you see are the big barriers to achieving success, and um, I'm really thinking about the physician leader, listener, as you talk about these barriers, what can they be doing and thinking about to address some of those, and, and maybe policymakers as well?
3: Most of the barriers to success have already been uh, seen in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. To begin with, the majority of ACOs still resist taking financial risk. Those ACOs that have taken risk, and I'm talking here about pre-pandemic conditions, have encountered a number of obstacles. First, they have to build the requisite infrastructure and get all of their providers on the same page. Uh, infrastructure vendors such as Allidaid, Evalent, and Arcadia can provide most of these services, in some cases, in return for a share of the savings. The primary care groups in my model uh, will also need financial reserves to cover any losses they may incur as they learn how to manage care. Uh, If their population is big enough, they can buy stop-loss insurance. Otherwise, uh, they may have to build up reserves from savings as they embrace more risk. Some infrastructure vendors are willing to provide the financial reserves. Policymakers need to be aware of these challenges in deciding on the limits of providers' potential losses, how they risk-adjust performance, how they compute benchmarks, and how often they rebase those benchmarks. Well, all these elements sound technical. Uh, they're key uh, to success in a total cost-based shared savings program.
1: Well, and if there were, if you had sort of one big piece of advice to give to physician leaders of, especially health systems and hospitals, which is a lot of our listeners, as far as the barriers and dealing with them, what would that be to uh, to the physician leaders listening out there? What can they be thinking about, or what should they be doing uh, with regard to the barriers?
3: Well, I, I really think that the, uh, the most important thing that the physician leaders can do is really uh, to lead, mm-hmm. to, uh, to talk to their uh, colleagues and to convince them that if they don't go down this path, the, the healthcare system is just going to collapse of its own weight and they're going to be in much worse shape than if they were in, than, than they'd be in if they participated in the kind of restructuring that I'm talking about. Um, it, it's a big leap, especially, I think, um, for specialists, because they're really not used to thinking in terms of, you know, taking risk of any kind. They're, they're really talking about, you know, well, I've got a business here, and uh, I have these employees that I've got to pay, and, you know, I, so I have to earn as much money as possible in order to do that, and, you know, to bring home a decent amount of money at the end of the day. But they're going to have to add this uh, other uh, dimension of thinking, which has actually been inculcated into uh, Kaiser Permanente doctors and some other doctors uh, in, in uh, groups that, that take risk. And that is they have to think about what is the best way to treat this patient you know, without wasting resources. So that, that's really, I think, that the job for uh, physician leaders is to get doctors to change how they think. Excellent.
1: So if some or all of the concepts that you have were embraced, how would you describe a, sort of a home run five years from now? What, what are we, what's the system looking like if it's a home run for you? Well, unfortunately, because of the COVID-19
3: pandemic, I don't think we'll be hitting any home runs in, in five years. Um, on the other hand, uh, the crisis will probably increase the chances of Medicare for all being adopted in the near term. Especially if insurers jack up their premiums by 40% or more, as some observers forecast. Um, Looking to the longer term, I believe it will take a good 10 years to restructure the system from top to bottom. If we look for shortcuts or embark on a crash program, I think it will fail or fall far short of its potential. It's possible, however, that we might have Medicare for all before the care delivery system can be rebuilt. In that case, taxes uh, would probably rise and provider incomes would be cut more than they otherwise would. There will still be time, however, to fix these problems as physician-led reform is phased in. Uh, The eventual outcome, uh, as I said, will depend largely on the imagination, courage, and tenacity of physician leaders. They will have something powerful to build on in the wake of this pandemic because of public admiration for the heroism and selflessness of so many doctors and nurses on the front line. They should take that baton and run with it to persuade the public and the government that physicians are the ones who are best positioned to save our system.
1: Great. Ken, any final thoughts you wanna leave our listeners with? Well, my my final thought is
3: is the one that I mentioned at the very end of my book. Uh, Healthcare reform, however it turns out, has to be considered in the context of the larger US economy. Healthcare is the biggest industry in the country, and 12% of Americans work in the field, not counting pharma and insurance employees. In many cities and counties, the local hospital is the largest employer. As we bend the cost curve, we have to remember it will result in the layoffs of millions of people. Useful occupations that pay a living wage must be found for these people, as for so many others who will lose jobs because of automation and outsourcing. So we need a government that is capable of thinking on a large scale about the future of work in this country.
1: Ken, great advice, great thoughts. Really appreciate you being on Sound Practice today. Thanks for being here.
3: Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk
1: about my ideas. And anyone who'd like to pick up that book, Physician-Led Healthcare Reform, A New Approach to Medicare for All, Ken's new book. It'll be available this summer, published by the American Association for Physician Leadership
2: requiring health systems to divest all of their employed physicians, removing private equity from the equation, putting doctors at the top of every organizational decision-making tree. Tothi, we are not in Kansas anymore.
1: (laughs) No, in Ken's new Medicare for All, we are not. And, you know, primary care would really become king. All physicians would be capitated and all Americans would truly get coverage.
2: No doubt it is a big vision. I look forward to hearing how these and other innovative ideas get discussed and worked on during our upcoming election cycle.
1: Yeah, and I'm pretty sure this is going to be a central issue during the campaign.
2: I agree 100%. Well, that wraps things up for us, Tothi. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into the podcast today. You'll find us on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And if you enjoy sound practice and listen to us regularly, somewhat regularly, or even just now and then, please do us a kindness and refer a colleague.
2: You can also be kind by reviewing us on your podcast app. It just takes two minutes, maybe even less, if you're a fan of of brevity. Of course, you can give us feedback directly. Just send an email to feedback at soundpracticepodcast.com.
1: That's right, Mike. And I hope all of you will join us for our next episode. Don't forget, we release one every other Wednesday.
0: You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at (laughs) physicianleaders.org.
3: Ritual Kapow.